And welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated Radio Syndicate partners or on the, the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing? Saren Kaster is not with us today. Lauren Latour will be joining us soon enough, finally again, uh, live. And uh, Well, as live as we can do on this weird show. As live as one does when one is trapped inside because of the COVID-19. Exactly. So this show is airing uh, on Good Friday, uh, the day Christians commemorate the crucifixion of the Son of God, who, according to BrainyQuote.com, made the following statements. If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So those are the words of the man who people around the world worship as the Savior. But, as implied by the paintings of Nicolas Poussin, we are in fact crucifying the Savior every day, insofar as we are perpetually uh, failing to save ourselves, whether by organizing an economy that isn't dependent upon the goodwill of wealth hoarders, or by moving away from personal vehicles, cheap flights, and fossil fuels generally, in order to soften the coming compounding environmental crises whose radical impacts to the structure of society are being prefigured by this pandemic. So the pandemic is political whether we like it or not. It isn't just social or personal or familial or economic. It's about who wields the power and what they're doing with it, and who is able to protect themselves. Because we know that, at least in the States, it is overwhelmingly black and brown people, and the poor, who are dying from the disease, and that the powerful are quite frightened because the apparatus of their power relies on the masses of workers who are most vulnerable to this pandemic. As Glenn Greenwald said on The Intercept last week with the, to the Truanon podcast host Liz Franzak, quote, The social order seems to be in acute, immediate jeopardy. We tend to forget that we've lived through this insane, insanely aberrational period of stability and stagnation and satisfaction, we in the Western world, where things just kind of plod along because there's been this propaganda model that's been fed to people about what they should and shouldn't value, joined with a relative prosperity, obviously not for most people, but enough that their kids aren't starving to death, and they don't have their immediate survival threat, and they're just hanging on uh, just enough by a thread to placate them with, with enough crumbs. Now we're about to see huge numbers of people dropping dead because they just don't have access to health care, while they watch extremely rich people hoarding huge amounts of resources who can save their families and themselves, the kind of thing that has always historically led to radical revolutionary change. And as Franzak rep- uh, also said, quote, or said in the interview, quote, it's like the whole world is changing overnight. We're witnessing the complete collapse of free movement in the European Union. We've got countries closing borders and starting to hoard oil. This is not a good situation historically. I'm hesitant to say revolutionary change, just because I don't think there is a revolutionary movement in the West. I don't know where the left goes from here, because at least in the U.S., these conservative revolutionary forces emerging on the right, it's not necessarily that they have popular legitimacy yet, but there's a war starting to emerge about who is going to have popular legitimacy, 
and I don't see any kind of movement emerging across the West out of any kind of left wing. Everyone seems kind of frozen, which I understand, but the left has no institutions. The left for 30 years has spent all its energy capturing academia and the media, which are two failing institutions, and they have nothing to show for it. She added that it's a very dangerous situation that we find ourselves in. Greenwald then brought up Lula da Silva in Brazil, who was able to capture popular left-wing sentiment by coming out of the labor movement, whose unpopularity with the academic elites drove more people to his side. And Franzak said, quote, We're entering into a new era. I don't know what the political landscape is going to look like in three years. I keep calling this capitalism's great leap forward. And she cited economist Michael Roberts as projecting up to 50% job loss and suggesting that this will accelerate the Singaporeification of the United States or the world more broadly. And as everyone's favorite communist glosser Slavoj Žižek recently said to Renata Avila for DM25, after she suggested that the responses to COVID could easily become genocidal, quote, this crisis shows that the rich cannot simply survive in isolation. They need us. Let's imagine the rich will try to control things from afar and so on. Who knows what will happen afterwards when things return a little bit to some kind of totally new type of normality. I cannot imagine capitalism surviving the way it works now. There will have to be radical changes or maybe a more brutal direct dictatorship. It's one option. He goes on to claim that once the ruling class recognizes that things are not simply going to go back to normal after three months of isolation, there will either have to be direct barbarism or some kind of communistic shift towards radical international cooperation, solid state institutions with the authority to powerfully counteract market trends, and local organizing and local organizing for the welfare of communities. He then argues, as we have recently, that the crisis is a dress rehearsal for the forthcoming global warming and ecological crisis. He says, quote, I think it will become clear that we need this, by which he means this more humane overhaul of the system, not as some utopian communist ideal. It's the urgency of life. What are the options if we do not do this? As signs of hope, Renata Avila brings up the street gangs in Brazil, who have called a truce and are focusing on helping their communities in a way that the Brazilian government is not, and the popular support for the right to strike of the frontline workers in the U.S. To take a hard look at the bailout measures in the U.S. thus far, as AOC said on Democracy Now! this week, quote, we're not just talking about half a trillion dollars that went to Wall Street. That is being leveraged into $4 trillion for Wall Street and corporations. And what we're seeing in payroll protection for small businesses is just a drop in the bucket compared to that. What this administration did was hold every hospital hostage, hold every frontline worker hostage. I think that people will soon see the betrayal that was in this bill that was pushed forward by the administration and by Mitch McConnell. It is completely unethical and inhumane. And we talk about the oversight of the bill. It is far too little. It is far too flimsy. What we have, what we have essentially done is give Steve Mnuchin a blank check to pick and choose who this administration will reward with $4 trillion. And who is the Trump administration rewarding? It's the very people who are sacrificing Earth's future to line their pockets today, to get more cars for their Instagram, one more yacht to self-isolate in, one more factory to employ slave children in, one more private jet to have orgies in the sky, or increase U.S. power by spreading the name of Jesus to whatever dictator. The point is, none of these people know what to do with their wealth. 
They just know they want endless piles of it at the expense of the very ground they stand on. And this pandemic is being used by the powerful to increase their control, even though in the case of fossil fuel companies and the industries that rely on them, the science is telling us that it's suicidal. Wow. Um, so that's, uh, that's a lot there. Um, I... Actually, just give me one second. I, I wanted to put one thing. Okay, there's... So... To, to talk about that last little bit about 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 Minujin being able to give away money to to whoever, I my I have one ask for Republicans, which uh, I am not going to say I am totally confident in, but I have but I do have one ask, which is that I hope that they provide as much uh, diligent oversight. On this four trillion dollars that 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 we that the Mnuchin and the Trump administration will be giving away, as they did uh, when Obama uh, provided a uh, a loan guarantee from the U.S. Energy Department as part of his uh, his uh, bailout in two thousand eight uh, to Solyndra. If anyone remembers Solyndra, mm. it was a a, a company that uh, was building um, that was trying to build uh, solar panels, and it became this. Uh, it became this huge scandal, according to the Republicans, about how terrible this was and how clearly it was just clearly proof it was that this whole thing was was corrupt and wrong. And and they received a loan guarantee of, of five hundred and thirty five million dollars, which is a significant sum of money. However, in the context of uh, of three trillion, um, is that is our four trillion? Well, five hundred billion directly going to the companies which they say will be leveraged into four trillion what that leverage means i don't know something to do with the fact that they have all these connections right they can leverage that money into something far greater right than 500 but still 500 billion but it means according to critics four trillion right um yeah so okay so so like just in terms of the total amount of wealth they're able now to wield because right. of this. Right, yeah. It, man, there's, if you ever want to get really mad, look into some of the ways that this money can be then. I think basically the idea is that people can then start betting on it. They can, say, they can use this money and then make bets on, on the stock market and bring it back. But uh, that's how it becomes $4 trillion, so They can make all that money back to them for themselves. While if they lose, it's a guaranteed loan guarantee, so it doesn't matter. Like it's a, but anyways, um, I'll just say that the that this that one solar company fails to do its job, and again, it it I, that I was huge. That cylinder thing was huge. Yeah, they it did not stop talking about. They did not talk about this, and it like it followed them forever. And yet, because they gave the money to the solar company and essentially tanked, right? Yeah, they didn't make enough. Yeah, just they just didn't make enough money. Like it 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 went, it went under. They lost the American government lost five hundred and twenty eight million dollars on them, mm. which is clearly a significant amount of money to lose. Um, and, and clearly not a good job, but, but in, in, in con, but like the response was for this was the context was that they had given out way, 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 way more money. And, and the actual fail rate for this, for the money was actually very small. Now, so the cylinder was a, was sort of a picked to, to example of a failure, but if you actually look at the whole operation, it was actually not so bad. Now, again, I'm not actually saying that the 2008 stimulus was done the way it was because of the fact that they decided to, you know, do exactly what we're very fearful will happen again right now, which is a bailing out of the industries that got us here. 
right? The, the fact that the, the big banks that had created the problem were the ones who received the money is exactly the problem we're trying to not recreate, or at least those who are advocating for a just recovery are trying not to recreate. Um, we cannot... It would be absurd, as mentioned in previous shows, to presume that the airline industry and um, and those and the other people hurt. Um, yeah, I guess the airline industry didn't cause it in the same way the banks caused it. But anyways, like we have to use this money to build a new future, not prop up the old one, as been made very clear in a number of statements. But the I found uh, there was an interesting point uh, that was made by uh, Liz Franzak in the quote where she talks about, she was quote, talking about an economist who was saying that uh, this, with 50% job loss and then this massive money going to corporations, will accelerate the Singaporefication of the United States or the world more broadly. So this is the idea that more and more people will be forced into uh, poverty wages and, and with very precarious jobs and just much more reliant upon their uh employers who are given much more power over them economically and socially. Mm, I was curious about that. Because in Singapore, you have all of these day-to-day uh, -day wage earners living in these tiny little uh, apartments in these massive, massive towers of, 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 of tons and tons of people living in these, uh, in these uh, small, uh, squalid conditions and who are just uh, sort of beholden to the those wielding the capital there. Right. It, and, it, and this has been, there's been conversations about this, about how, about how dangerous uh, for society wealth inequality is. Um, you know, it's not, it is dangerous for everyone uh, and unpleasant for everyone. And, and I do think that it was like the, the, the biggest concern here. And I think part of the reason why the response to this is going to be so important is, is because of the fact that it's, also speeding up a whole bunch of other things it's speeding up the fact that you know there's jim i think it's jim kramer the you know the hugely questionable uh business uh analyst um but you know but he, again is a you know right-wing guy basically came out and said that he believed that if this lasted longer than three months there would only be three retailers left in the united states that it would basically be the death of all retail that was not I believe it was uh, Amazon, Costco, and Walmart, mm -hmm. and and that kind of that 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 being added to you know we've seen this over time how much power has been consolidated whether or not it's the the fact that Disney owns basically all of the entertainment industry or whether or not that you know that Google, Facebook, and uh, and Amazon own basically all of the internet you know like we're seeing more and more and more places where the power is getting more and more and more um, tightly controlled. Uh, and and in becoming much more uh, centered on on individuals, on a few individuals, that that this whole thing can come down. Um, that like that like what we're what we're still holding on to is this idea that there's like mom and pop stores and yada yada yada. But like very quickly, if there's only f ten com companies that own everything, which again we are already headed there, but this will one hundred percent speed that up. We we are in a very dangerous and bad place. And that's why the response to this has to, you know, break up some of these companies. It has to provide some sort of antitrust legislation. It has to work to, to allow for there to be more distinct organization companies that are not all basically consolidating power. 
and and that's the biggest danger i think of this of this not of the response not being done well Welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the podcast, the Green Majority Podcast. I am uh, David Hostetter, still with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing? And uh, in our COVID isolation, we are wonderfully joined, finally, again, by Lauren Latour in Ottawa. Hello, fellas. How are you doing today? Stefan uh, is stressed from working from home all the time. That, well, working the working from home is not the stress. The working all the time is the stress. But, you know, that's that's a distinction maybe unnecessary. Yes, and I suppose you're working all the time, and there are those who don't know what to do with themselves because they've been laid off. It is a privilege. <laughs> you, have to, you have to practice better tech hygiene, <laughs> right? What is that, like leaving your laptop outside of your bedroom, shutting your phone off half an hour before bed? Yeah. Well, that's a new term for me. I like that, tech hygiene. <laughs> 
And uh, so we're going to go into uh, what is occurring in the United States with fossil fuel companies uh, responding to stimulus, trying to get on that, and what Trump is doing with the EPA and environmental regulation generally. So 350.org co-founder Jamie Henn has given us an extensive list of shady things fossil fuel companies have been doing during this pandemic, which I will now summarize. The coal industry in the U.S. is lobbying to stop paying to treat minors' cases of black lung. Uh, Republican senators are suggesting that fossil fuel companies shouldn't have to make royalty payments. Uh, that's royalty payments to the government on the lands that they're uh, drilling on. Fossil fuel, the fossil fuel lobby is trying to get $3 billion for U.S. strategic petroleum reserves to enhance those or protect those. Pipelines are still being constructed in spite of risk to communities and workers. Oil CEOs, including Harold Hamm, are trying to get Trump to step into the Saudi-Russian price war in a bid to uh, increase uh, oil prices. The U.S. is still selling off uh, drilling leases at low prices during the pandemic. The Democratic governor of Kentucky, as well, signed a bill that makes uh, pipelines key infrastructure assets and makes it a felony to disrupt them. Uh, South Dakota also is calling any oil, gas, or utility equipment, essentially, critical infrastructure. Uh, and they also made it a felony to screw with this infrastructure in any, in any way. And as the Huffington Post reports, the governor uh, approved a second measure as well, defining a felony riot as, quote, intentional use of force or violence by three or more persons that causes any damage to property. West Virginia is also planning to deem a big range of fossil fuel facilities uh, critical infrastructure as well, and they're drastically raising fines up to $20,000 for causing $2,500 or more in damages. HuffPo continues, quote, The Alabama State Senate passed its own version on March 12th, just before the officials, alarmed at the uh, spread of the new virus, postponed legislative hearings until April. Similar legislation is active in at least five other states, Illinois, Minnesota, Mississippi, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, but has not progressed in the past month. Fossil fuel companies across the U.S. are also, of course, hiring advisors to take full advantage of the stimulus money. The huge slush fund we mentioned earlier that Mnuchin will be dealing uh, out is, of course, being hounded after by fossil fuel companies. The U.S. government has bailed out Capital One uh, since they made bad bets on oil and gas, Whiting Petroleum Corp. gave $14 million uh, to its executives just prior to filing for bankruptcy recently. The huge, already bankrupt coal company, Murray Energy, is trying to avoid its health care obligations. The most polluted part of America might see another plastics factory going up there. And of course, industry lobbyists in general have been toppling over each other to get to the stimulus money. And last week, seven industry leaders, as Stefan mentioned, who were paid a combined $100 million in 2018, spoke directly to the White House to convince them to give them money out of the public purse. And now looking at the environmental deregulation that's been going on in the U.S. in the midst of the pandemic, environmental groups have alleged that, as Jamie Hedden puts it, quote, the fossil fuel industry created a second back channel, uh, sorry, a secret back channel with the Trump administration where they discussed exactly how to dismantle protections during the pandemic. And lo and behold, the U.S. is no longer enforcing environmental and public health standards, and it's not clear when they'll ever start again. They've also rolled back mileage standards, which will raise total U.S. emissions by at least a fifth. They're also no longer going to regulate pipeline safety or hazardous materials. 
They're letting people sell the dirtier winter fuel for longer, and they're trying to build more and more big environmental disasters projects generally, and even more public parkland might be leased to oil and gas companies even while no one's allowed on them because of COVID. Of course, air pollution makes viruses like COVID worse, and the U.S. stimulus package includes no green initiatives at all, which could help put people back to work later on. Inside Climate News quotes economist Gernot Wagner as saying, quote, The fossil fuel industry is particularly capital-intensive. Installing solar panels on people's roofs is famously labor-intensive. In a week when 3 million Americans have filed for unemployment, why not focus on actually helping those most affected by the crisis? Loosening environmental restrictions is a particularly short-sighted way of attempting to stimulate economic activity. And finally, as Rebecca Lieber points out for Mother Jones, uh, the EPA is also going to, quote, roll back a coal power plant standard that limits the brain-damaging mercury and arsenic they release. She also points out that, quote, the administration is in a race against an artificial deadline set by the 1996 Congressional Review Act that allows a simple majority in Congress to easily reverse Trump's rollbacks in 2021. But the law only applies to regulations that were passed in the final 60 days of the congressional calendar, which means you can count on a lot more rollbacks until that deadline in late May. Wow. So that's a lot. Um... Uh, I don't even really know where to begin, but uh, perhaps you do, Lauren? Um, the one thought going through my head listening to, to David just like read out this page of like depressing, like fast facts was just that like somewhere Naomi Klein is on a webinar repeating the words disaster capitalism, like ad nauseum over <laughs> and over and over again. Um, like what the shock doctrine came out like like 15 years ago. 20 years ago i'm not even sure it came out ages ago and i feel like we are we are seeing what she describes in the shock doctrine and again in like all of her other books just hitting us really really hard i feel like we've entered like a new phase of of sort of the covid panic response where where we're seeing these gigantic corporations and governments that are in bed with them taking advantage of these moments like we know they do like like we know they do this these moments of panic and these big crises happen and 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 everybody tries to use it as a political leverage point to push through their policy and i mean like we on the left are kind of guilty of the same thing. We just think of it in a really positive light. Like the way that like, yeah, we're all kind of hoping a universal basic income is gonna come out of this. And then we're gonna be able to keep that universal basic income around in the decades to come. They're kind of doing the exact same thing on the right, just in a way that we find to be insidious and icky. Um, and and yeah, and it's and part part there's there's a lot of reasons we can we can point to, but like one of them is because we're we're just not paying attention as citizens right now. Um, and I mean, I, I feel like that was sort of like really put on display for me today. We're we're recording on Wednesday, um, the day that uh, Bernie Sanders has has announced his his resignation from the Democratic campaign because it sort of it sort of blindsided me. And maybe it wouldn't have if I were paying better attention to the news cycle right now, because I feel like although I'm constantly refreshing my Twitter feed and constantly reading articles, they're articles of a certain kind. They're articles like convincing me that like, no, it's fine. You're not being that productive. It's okay to be a bit of a bump on a log or like, it's okay to be scared or whatever. Like I'm, I'm reading and consuming a lot of a certain kind of content and I'm not 
sort of staying on top of things the way I normally would be. And I feel like that's probably the same for a lot of people. So like what better time for corporations to take advantage of us and for governments to push through really messed up policy, especially when they don't have to be consulting with their fellow representatives because of the way that we've structured our governments to, to respond in times of crisis. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, and and the so it turns out uh, I googled this while you were talking. Shock Darden came in two thousand seven, uh, which honestly incredibly timed book given given what two thousand eight brought. Like what a what a particularly well timed book. Um, but um, but yeah, like the, the there's I it's, I think it's a combination of it's not only just that people aren't able to. Aren't 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 able to follow uh, a lot of the a lot of these the the news and and as the other stories come through, it's also we've been very limited by the way we can actually respond. You know, it's 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 not just that we're not able to to understand what's going on. We can read all these articles, but then what are we doing? Signing another petition while still not going outside? Like it's very very hard to build power. And sorry, and and understanding that that petition can't be delivered in the same way it normally can. Like, yes, it can maybe be emailed to your minister of parliament or, or your representative if you're down in the States, but, but they can't necessarily act on it because they're not meeting with fellow parliamentarians in the same way. And honestly, a digital, a digital petition delivery doesn't have the same impact as an in-person one ever. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, sorry, I cut you off. Please continue. No, no, no. Yeah. But no, but that's the good point. Like there's this not, and you know, and we're watching right now. A lot of groups try to find ways to build power without, you know, being able to actually build, you know, connection, direct human to human connections, except for online, and and that's a hard thing to do. And so there really is a time, and especially given right now that like. In, in a time like now, and I'm not saying people should go outside. That is not, I'm not here to, I'm not going to go there. I don't think it's a good idea. We should all stay safe. But I do think that it, it it is a time maybe now that we should find ways to provide even more oversight and more scrutiny on what's going on. You know, and, and there's and there's been a huge amount of, of, of issues with the American bailout bill, given how lit, how much, how, like Trump, what I think as soon as he signed it, basically in the signing, like, I don't know why presidents can just ignore parts of bills when they sign it like apparently that's the thing you're allowed to do is just write i'm going to ignore this part and then he and then you can which like again there's i that's the probably a slight uh, overstatement but it does seem to be basically what he did which was that he said that like in this bill gets to him with all this oversight and he writes in his signing uh, statement uh i am not going to respond to the oversight parts and so the Congress does not have the ability anymore or will not be will, can, is not going to be expected to be able to have this. And I'm presuming that they could probably sue and go to Supreme Court. But given what the Supreme Court did in Wisconsin yesterday, um, which in case if you didn't know to our listeners, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States decided to not extend the ability for people to do mail in voting in Wisconsin. And in fact, basically disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of people, probably because they forced them to go outside and to a polling place to be able to vote and because most voting uh volunteers are elderly they lost like almost all of them like they went from 180 something polling locations somewhere to three like that's just like that is such a drop i think i read no, no there, there was like i must have been before in my early canceling but they were saying three percent turnout in milwaukee like that's not that's not democracy anymore. And if the so if the Supreme Court is willing to basically 
allow for that level of voter suppression, I'm not confident they're going to suddenly turn and, and make sure that the that Trump and his cronies are not going to like spend this two trillion dollar dollars in a way that will really help people. Like it's it's massive. Well, well, no, and it's and it's like sort of like what you were talking about. Now that this bill in the states has been passed, Congress can't touch it again because because now Trump has his sticky fingers all over it. And 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 it's sort of it's this weird double edged sword because. As terrible as that is, at the same time, we are sort of grateful that in these periods of emergency, our governments are able to react quickly and to pass billion dollar stimulus bills without having to painstakingly go through them like they normally would a budget bill over the course of months and months and months, because it means that as of as of what, as of Monday this week, people, at least in Canada, can can file for and for, for provisions and cash injections. So, so that, that, that responsiveness is necessary in these periods of, of emergency, but we are losing a, a sort of, we're losing the democraticness of, of our, of our parliamentary system at the same time and our legislative system. Um, and, and unfortunately I don't sort of have any amazing revelation or, or any sort yeah. of like epiphany idea to how we can remedy the situation, but it's, 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 yeah, we're in a brutal situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I will say that, you know, I, I, have a, I have a friend who applied for the, that credit on Monday and it was in his account today, which is in kind of incredible. Like it, That is incredible. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And it's so needed. I guess it's just it's <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 the way we all say like, oh, well, like an enlightened despot wouldn't be bad. But how right. often do you really get an enlightened despot? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We can't we can't all believe in Plato's and uh, Plato's beliefs. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and so we'll move on to the next thing in a second, but I do, I do just want to like sort of pull back to some of these, man, like there's, it, it, we're seeing it in a lot of places and we'll get to it in a second about other, other reductions, but like the amount of which these fossil fuel companies seem so clearly out to make as much money as they can for the people involved right now for the shortest period of time. And then like, it strikes me that they see the writing on the wall and and I don't know if Dave's gonna get to this in the, in, in, his, in the next section that where we cover Kenny briefly, but um, but like it's, it strikes me as very similar to Kenny's letter uh, demanding a bailout for fossil fuel workers that was basically just written as fossil fuel CEOs. Like nowhere in that letter does it say give our workers good jobs. It says give us money so we can keep them doing exactly what makes us money. Like that's not the same thing, which has been pointed all over Twitter. But like that's a very similar setup here. Is that the, the there's the writing on the wall for how much time you can make money on fossil fuels, and everyone's sort of seeing that run out, and people are getting more and more desperate. And desperation brings out things like you know, tr- giving your executives fourteen point six million dollars, and then filing for bankruptcy. Yeah, it's like they're 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 the richest rats running from the sinking ship. Like packing their bags full of rat-sized gold. A really weird analogy and a weird image, but but like that's honestly what it is. You're right. They see the writing on the wall. They know what's happening. I was actually, as you were reading, I was like, oh, I'm going to pull this quote and I was going to pull the exact same quote you did. Yeah. That, yeah, to repeat, uh, Whiting Petroleum Corp gave $14.6 to its executives just prior, before, just prior to filing for bankruptcy. And, and I don't know, as you were reading that, I was sitting here being like, wow, I mean, filing for bankruptcy doesn't sound half bad. <laughs> if you're an oil executive yeah well or or donald trump who did it like 15 times five times yeah. um but yeah no they they know it's going south i mean we talked about it ad nauseum last week the oil industry is utterly collapsing in on itself this period of economic recession isn't going to do any better any better so right now they're lining their pockets while they can um until things really start to 
I don't know, take a turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I don't I don't have uh, anything on the letter you just mentioned. Oh, great. Uh, so I'll just uh, read my couple paragraphs about Alberta. The province of Alberta has also decided to suspend all environmental reporting during COVID. And since the province relies on self-reporting, we're essentially going to see no regulation whatsoever. As law professor Sean Fluker told the National Post, quote, we don't send officials out to ensure that terms and conditions are being complied with. That information gap means arguably we're not just halting reporting, we're halting the operation of the regulatory system. We lose the ability to exercise compliance and enforcement measures. Drinking water facilities will not be affected, but practically every other environmental issue will. Projects are, of course, still being permitted, even while environmental oversight has disappeared. And as Lauren mentioned last week, Alberta gave a $1 billion loan to TC Energy to build Keystone XL and is guaranteeing $4 billion more just after laying off 20,000 education workers because they said they couldn't afford them. Keystone and other pipelines are still being built, even though they could spread the virus to Indigenous communities through their tightly packed workers' camps. Yeah. I, very briefly, I have a, I, I, I saw a tweet today, which is related to this last little bit, which I, which is slightly off topic, but I think you'll understand. Um, which is a tweet from a someone who worked at uh, worked at one of the big developing firms in in Toronto, and and they were saying that like in all this talk about the heroes or the frontline workers and people doing that, they missed one, uh, which were the construction workers who were still building the houses and and condos, and I was like. A, there's a whole conversation to be had about who we deem heroes and how we just use that to avoid paying them any money. Uh, like, I'm sure a grocery store worker would rather make $20 an hour than to be called a hero. But um, but also, B, we should not be building things. <laughs> like, if they're not hospitals or repairing important infrastructure, we should not be subjecting these people to these situations, especially not in, in the terms of for fossil fuel purposes. Like, the fact that we're still building, uh, you know, the, the, the pipeline... The Coastal Gas Link. Coastal Gas That's Link. Um, you know, the fact that we're still building Coastal Gas Link, we're now going to start building Keystone XL. Like these, the fact that this is the, what we're prioritizing is, un, is, is, is almost unconscionable. No, it, it absolutely is. And I mean, like, I feel like I talked about it last week when like, especially when it comes to these pipelines, it's not, these aren't, these aren't people who go to work in the morning and get to come home at the end of the day and clean themselves off and leave their stuff at uh, like outside their door. These are people who oftentimes live in these man camps that we've talked about on the show in the past where, where, where they live in very close quarters. Think of it like like your university dormitory or or your residence, right? Like it's like you're living in all likelihood. It's not just you and your bedroom. You have a common space you have to congregate in and, and there's nowhere to go that isn't on site. So you're around the same people all the time. So, so I mean, like it's a breeding ground for illness to begin with, compound that with the fact that we are actually living through a pandemic right now. So, so no, it's, it is, it is unconscionable, but, but also like going back to this specific story about, about these uh, deregulations happening in Alberta, they really don't make like, like trying to apply some sort of logic to them. You just can't because these, because you have um, like Keystone XL still being built, coastal gasling still being built, these billions of dollars being, being spent on projects, this money being spent on, on physical construction, the, the money that you're saving or the time that you're saving by not requiring these people to hit send on their 
data analysis reports is is minuscule the the labor is is virtually nothing and like i said like there's no overhead costs really when it comes to collecting data at, at least not serious overhead costs so so specifically within the story we were reading there's a professor from i think u of calgary and he's like i kind of don't understand what the reason is behind suspending this regulatory need because all you're doing is keeping some people from hitting a couple buttons on a computer like you're 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 not saving money if that's the reason you say that you're doing it you're not really saving that much time in terms of like the actual time it takes to submit a report what you are doing is paving the pathway for these companies to ignore these regulations not just now but in the future because like like we said before uh, politicians and organizations use these opportunities of crisis to push through the legislation they want. So, so then, yeah, in, in six months, in three months, in a year, whenever this crisis is over, um, we're going to be used to these companies not having to submit these regulatory or submit to these regulatory processes. So in all likelihood, we, we won't go back to a period where we require it of them. So, so we're paving the way for them to, I don't know, be footloose and fancy free with whatever they want to do from a regulatory standpoint. So as our good friend Emma McIntosh reported this week for the National Observer, the Ontario government has also suspended a key environmental oversight because they say they could hinder its response uh, or it could hinder its response to the pandemic. She writes, quote, the change allows the progressive conservative government to push forward projects or laws that could significantly impact the environment without consulting or notifying the public. Critics say they fear the relaxed rules could be used to skirt environmental oversight for projects unrelated to COVID-19. Under the new regulation, government ministries do not have to consult the public or consider environmental values as they make decisions. The regulation doesn't specify that those decisions must be related to COVID-19. Yeah, and this is the same thing, right? This is the this is the exact same thing. This is using the opportunity to to you say the words COVID nineteen that you can get to do whatever you want, right? Like it's it's that's all it is. It there's nothing else here, you know. The that 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 like if if there was a particular project that had to get fast tracked, you could easily get people on board for whatever that project is. I can't imagine what projects they're even referring to, and the fact that the Doug Ford government considered the Ring of Fire as an essential service, uh, or at least mining as an essential service when they put it when they put it out there. I'm not. I'm not exactly going to give this like and again, I'm not going to give this government the benefit of the doubt given their their track record on these things. So if listeners do want to read more about this, um, specifically the, the, the policy and the regulation it's referring to is from the Ontario Environmental Bill of Rights Part Two. And there um, there are certain sections which which um, industry is now exempted from, but which basically require um, public consultation for projects and for so, uh, public notification of those projects as they're happening. Um, neither of those things are required under under sort of this, this blanket exemption. Um, and the government is also exempted from having to inform people about the projects in the first place from what I was able to glean from the short amount of reading I did. Um, what I also read was that, again, this is an exemption that doesn't make sense because under the original Bill of Rights, 
there already was an emergency exemption worked into it, whereby uh, public participation wasn't necessary under sort of three conditions. If, there, if the public consultation was going to pose danger to, to physical health um, or safety, if it was going to pose harm to the environment, or if it was going to risk property damage. So when you've already got a bill that requires consultation but does have this caveat that you don't have to do it if, if, if one of these three conditions are met, what's the point in putting in this blanket exemption to industry other than, again, to make it way easier for them to push through projects anytime in the next several months? Because it does, um, it, uh, this sort of blanket exemption extends at least 30 days past the point of this sort of period of emergency. So it's going to be for at least the next four months or so that these that this industry is going to have this free pass when it comes to implementation of new projects that they don't have to uh, sort of consult with the public on and they don't have to inform the public on. Um, and, and at a certain point, once we start to see more stimulus money being injected into the province of Ontario and more opportunities for businesses to apply for that money to push through their projects, this is, uh, I don't know, I'm imagining sort of this like disaster scenario where we have all these brand new energy projects or, or, or infrastructure projects popping up and the community hasn't been consulted on any of them because they've been pushed, they've been pushed forward within this period of time when they don't have to be asked about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it comes from uh, at the most the the most um, uh, charitable I can be on this. It would be the supposition that the idea is well, then we'll get that's a way to restart our economy because all these new projects will start happening right at the end. Like that's and and yet, you know, and yet that's that ignores again the of course the massive externalized costs uh, for the public for everything. Uh, and need I remind everyone that currently the part, a big part of the bailout to oil companies that that's been considered includes cleaning up a million orphan wells, which only exist because of terrible regulation. And and a reminder that that I think it was Diane Sachs, the former environment commissioner in Ontario, came out as like clarifying that like in certain areas. COVID deaths are being increased because of the air pollution that's already existing. So like, yes, we, we want stimulus, we want rebuilding, we, we, we want infrastructure to be developed over the next several months, but we need to do it carefully in a way that doesn't further pollute sort of the immediate environment and the immediate air that we breathe, because that only puts us at increased risk during a period of time where we are already at great health risk. There, but you were right. There's a, there's a new research, uh, it's a New York Times article called New Research Links Air Pollution to Higher coronavirus death rates and i believe it is about the areas that have higher pollution have had higher death rates because it attacks your lungs and this has been an ongoing problem and so yeah like like we're it's it's part of it's all of this ends up being sort of one and the same because as you allow people it's the same reason why the, the how why so many deaths right now are be, in the states especially are being focused on the the racial disparity that's occurring is that like all of these systems are in place like the reason why you, it, you, the, the, why like astronomically higher percentages of, of deaths are are of, of, of different minorities in the, in the states is because of the history of of, uh, of racial discrimination there in the same way that the his, that that environmental justice allows you to see this through a lens of the reason why the poor people are where there's more where there's actually more air pollution is also the reason why you see more deaths like it's all linked into this larger system that we've been building for the last I don't know basically since we showed up here or you know began our colonial uh destruction (laughs) 